In London, technology is the Silicon Roundabout. Introducing a new talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. Silicon Real. Each week, interviewing entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, financial technology, accelerators, and incubators in an exciting three-person format. Learn about the people behind the innovation. Locally filmed, locally sourced. Silicon Real. It's about the people. This is Silicon Real, the weekly talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. I am Brian Rose. I also host London Real. It's the same studio. We get some guys in the room or some girls and try to figure some things out. Uh, we just recently had um, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson. We've had uh, Tim Ferriss in the house of the Four Hour Everything. Uh, we've had uh, you know George Galloway in here charming my pants off, and uh, even Max Kaiser from Russia Today talking about Bitcoin. So uh, check that out at LondonReal.tv. But today we're here to talk tech. My co-host is uh, entrepreneur Colin Pyle. Uh, you're running around London doing coffee, doing language schools. What's going on? Yeah, busy times. Off to Italy next week. Nail down three more blends for the coffee. So yeah, we're just we're, we're yeah we're doing great, man. It's just really, really, really busy right now. But okay. uh, yeah, all is all is going well, and keep buying the coffee. Good, high-quality problems, they say. High, yeah, sales <laughs> problems are good problems. Are good problems, yeah. yeah. I always, it's hard to remember that when you're in the middle of yeah. it. But yeah. then, you know, in retrospect, better to have too many customers than not enough, right? Exactly. exactly. Cool. Before we get to the show, I just want to say thanks to TaskRabbit, which is one of our sponsors. Uh, they're an online marketplace that just got to London a few months ago. You can outsource uh, small jobs and tasks to other people in your community. They actually run the back-end uh, part of Silicon Reel. They do our quotes for us, chop up videos. Um, they actually are replacing my shades next Monday. There's like a guy that's going to come come in with a ladder and do it. I mean, like, and they're just super responsive. They're like everything you would expect from like Silicon Valley tech. And we'll have to ask Andy about that. If it's actually true, you know, applied to like a normal service industry where I would be like calling someone and being put on hold. And here I'm like instant messaging the guy. And so yeah. it's awesome. So if you want to check them out, you can get 25 pounds of free service. Use the code real 25. Uh, they're what they're new to our community. So welcome on board. Check them out. Super cool. Yeah. Mm. On to the show. Our guest today is Mr. Andy McLaughlin, who is the co-founder of huddle, which is, uh, the most comprehensive tool for managing projects and files in the cloud, uh, used by over 100,000 organizations, 100,000 uh, worldwide, including Disney, Diageo, and the UK government. Um, I believe over the years you guys have raised over $40 million? Yeah, but about $42 million all in, I think. Okay, I think in about three funding rounds, you guys are co-headquartered uh, in London and in San Francisco. Correct. Um, you guys also have the Huddle Foundation, which provides uh, a free software to uh, registered charities like UNICEF and uh, Swiss Red Cross. Correct. Um, you're also an angel investor in uh, companies like Postmates, Buffer, I like Buffer, uh, Secret Escapes, Pipedrive, and more. Andy, welcome to Silicon Rail. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's, uh, it's awesome having you here. You know, you're a busy guy. You're bi-coastal. You know, you're cruising through this neighborhood right now. And I, I want to know, what is it like to see the building you were formerly in being torn down, right? You see Old Street uh, Tube Station. Uh, it's no longer as dirty as it used to be. It's, yeah, now it's, it's had a kind of crazy facelift. Oh, yeah. It was actually kind of pleasant walking through today. It's, it's, it felt it's, weird. It's, it's it like, felt weird. I'm, I remember coming here like to the, to the roundabout area about probably 12 years ago. And it was kind of dismal oh, back geez, then. I mean, kind it, of. And it's unrecognizable now. It's amazing. I mean, I, it is kind of sad to see that building torn down because, you know, we were in there, Skimlinks were in there, Moo were in there, TweetDeck were in there, Group Spaces were in there, Last.fm were in there. You know, there's a lot of kind wow. of startup history yeah. in that building, but it was kind of a hole as well. I mean, you know, they, I think the, land, the, the owners have basically given up doing anything to it for the last year or so. 
They should have like sold tiles from it like they do in like, old, <laughs> yeah. old, old stadiums. It's like, it's like, it, like a piece <laughs> like, of the Berlin Wall. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's going to be uh, something called the White Collar Factory, which is going to be a 12-story building. I actually went through a tour of the buildings, and the guy was showing oh, cool. me everything they're going to do, and it'll be up in a couple of years. So it'll be towering over the roundabout, you know. It's called White it's, Collar it's, Factory. Yeah, yeah that's cool. what it's called. Kind of, nothing kind of, nothing yeah. divisive about that name yeah, whatsoever. Yeah. <laughs> a little cheeky. Is, is part of the reason you used to be there is because you didn't know the length of your lease, so you could get kind of short, uh, cheap leases because you didn't know when the building was going to get... Yeah, so we... Um, I think Alex Hoy said that. Yeah, that that's here. right. I, th- yeah. I think everyone that's been in that building kind of will tell you that one of the prime reasons for being there, even more so than being right on the roundabout, which was a super cool spot, was that it was really, really cheap. Like, really cheap. So I remember talking to Richard about this when um, after they moved out and before we were going to move in. And what he was saying was that, um, you know, every year they'd been told that they were going to be evicted because they were going to be pulling the building down. Right. And for four or five years, it had just gone on. And then we moved in and like for another two years, you know, we expected actually we'd probably be in there forever. And then one day we get the notice saying, hey guys, you know, you've got to, you've got to move out. And I think actually everybody in the, in the building was um, being evicted on the 24th of December. So it's like a, bit of, <laughs> a, a, a very startup Christmas. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. But, uh, it, you know, it was, um, it was amazing for us. You know, it allowed us to go from, you know, probably 40 people up to, you know, we probably had, you know, almost 100 in there by the time we left, you know, really overflowing. Um, but, and it was kind of nice to see when we, when we first moved in, the kind of, you know, this kind of nascent Shoreditch, Silicon roundabout scene that was beginning to grow. And then, you know, coming back over the months after that and just seeing it explode. What is it like to come back now and see it change, like even by a factor of, you know, 10 more Google campuses here now? You know, there's so many other companies. What's it like? Because you guys were there early on. This is seven, eight years ago when you guys started. Yeah, yeah. So um, I I talk about kind of the last day that I had a real job was November 2006. So I think um, we, Ali and I both kind of started on Huddle full time then. We'd been working on it for a while. And kind of it's it's, it's almost impossible to think back what the London scene was like back then, because really... There wasn't a London scene. You could probably count, you know, there were a bunch of companies building tech stuff, but there was no real community. Um, you know, the, Rob Locke would, would throw a few dinners, um, and really that was it. And so actually pretty early on, Ali and I decided, as well as doing Huddle, we'd have a side project, which was a, an event called Drink Tank, which was a monthly, basically, drink up for um, entrepreneurs, investors, journalists, because there wasn't anything at the time. Now, you know, we kind of got busy with Huddle. I moved away. Ali moved to SF as well. You know, but since then, you know, it's, it's like a kind of, it's like a Hydra. Drink Tank finished and then like four other events popped up in its place. Yeah, now you got the Drink About so and, well, tons of them. The yeah. Milk Roundabout. Yeah. You've got, you know, the whole scene's kind of gone. Every night of the week, you can go to like five different events, <laughs> probably if you wanted to. Yeah. And when, when did you move to San Francisco? Why did you make that decision? Because that's a big decision. Mm-hmm. And what's it been like? So I moved out there in May 2010. So it's coming up to four years now. Wow. It'll be four years in, in just a, over a week or so, which is, which is crazy because it's gone in the blink of an eye. Um, we moved out, or rather I moved out um, because we raised our B round um, earlier in 20, 2010 from Matrix Partners, who are a US uh, VC from a guy called Josh Hanna. Uh, Josh is a, a, a value-based partner. And, you know, he quite fairly said, look, you know, given what you guys are doing, you know, you're building kind of broad enterprise technology, you need to have a big presence in, on the West Coast. Um, you know, I'd been going out there anyway. I kind of knew the, the, the area pretty well. You know, I was pretty much young, free, and single. So I was like, you know, I'll fall on that sword. I will move to California and go and set up the U.S. office. Right. Alistair had like a, a kid. He had another one on the way. He was kind of knee-deep in running the UK operation. And, you know, the great thing about having two founders is that you can kind of divide and conquer like that. What's it been like uh, lifestyle-wise? You're an Englishman in California. You know, I'm American in, in London, yeah. but that's another story. <laughs> I'm a Canadian in London. We're, we're all... 
Yeah, well, yeah, well, kind of out of water. What's it like being there? I mean, uh, did you must you must have seen the usual typical things at first, where you're like, okay, this is what I expected. And yeah. Then, what was it really like? I mean, I, I guess I kind of, I knew the place reasonably well because I'd been going there quite often. I mean, I always say to entrepreneurs when they're thinking about making that big leap, you know, before you before you do it, spend a bunch of time there. Don't just go out for a week once a year. You know, really try and get out there and immerse yourself. But Airbnb makes it super easy to go out there and spend a month. You know, living kind of amongst other people, you know, other entrepreneurs that are building stuff, and just see if it's for you. Because not every company needs to be out there. You know, if you're building, um, you know, maybe e-commerce, or if you're building fashion, or you're building retail technology, or financial technology, or legal technology, you know, there's nothing in San Francisco for you. But if you're doing the kind of broader stuff, broad enterprise, broad consumer marketplaces, it's the best place in the world to be. And I think for me, the um, the I guess the, the biggest change compared to London was just that. In the same way as maybe LA is a kind of one industry town, you know, people talk about working in the industry, you know, when you work in movies, that in San Francisco, it feels like a one industry town. You know, everybody works in tech or they work in industries supporting tech. And actually, that's not the truth. I mean, I think they, I read recently that only 7% of workers in San Francisco work in tech, but it certainly feels that way. You know, you're hanging out in the Mission or you're hanging out in Soma or downtown, and you literally walk around and you see on buildings, the logos of companies. You know, these aren't well-known companies, but we know them because we work in the space, and they're just everywhere. You know, you go into a coffee shop and you bump into Esther Dyson, or you hear two guys talking about, you know, they're going to set up some new car-sharing service called Lyft. You know, and before you know it, you know, it's raised like $100 million in funding. It's, um, it, it, it's a kind of crazy place. And I think the, that, the upside is that everybody's working in tech, and the downside is that everyone's working in tech. So it can kind of feel a little bit navel-gazy. And I think what the, the mistake that I made and, and the mistake that a lot of other people make when they first move there is they only hang out with other people who work in tech. You know, whereas actually there's a huge, you know, there's a huge beautiful city with a lot of diversity, a lot of st- cool stuff going on, and a lot of stuff that isn't just in the Mission or in the Marina or in um, or in Hayes Valley or in Soma. You know, there's so many cool neighborhoods with so much great stuff to see and so much amazing food as well. I'm moving back, maybe. Now, <laughs> it, now, I guess in the last four years since you've been there, there's kind of been a shift from people in the valley coming down to the city. Yeah. You, you know, maybe talk a little bit about that. It's, it's yeah. So, I mean, I, I think that kind of almost predates when I got out, when I got there. But certainly, I think if you rewound 10 years, right. you'd see that all the action was happening in Mountain View and in Palo Alto, Sunnyvale. And, you know, and anyone that's been to these places, I mean, Palo Alto is actually quite nice. You know, you've got Stanford University there. There's a nice downtown. But generally, it's just a lot of strip malls, kind of small, affluent, very white towns, um, it's kind of boring. I mean, the analogy I always draw is it's kind of like Reading, but with sunshine and palm trees. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, I think companies like Yelp and Twitter have really, and kind of more latterly, I guess, Dropbox, have really kind of fueled companies wanting to be in San Francisco. You know, it's a real city. It has great neighborhoods. It has diversity. It has great bars and amazing restaurants and, like, cool stuff to do. And, you know, and, and also, you know, in San Francisco, you're three hours from the mountains or four hours from the mountains to go skiing. You can be in wine country in 45 minutes. Weren't, um, you, weren't you tweeting wine country pictures last week or something? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I was, I was there with my girlfriend. It was, it was amazing. We went to a, um, went to a winery, which I, I guess was owned by a Russian guy because there was a lot of Russians there. And we drove in in my friend's VW Golf, and they had valet parking. And I swear to God, within about five minutes, about 10 Ferraris and Lamborghinis and McLarens drove in 
in single file, and a bunch of very, very rich Russians got out. <laughs> but not tech Russians. Not tech Russians. I have, I have no idea what they were doing. But yeah, I, I don't think it was tech. Escaping. <laughs> yeah, maybe so. You know, for people that don't know the history of Huddle or even where you guys are today, I was wondering if you'd give us like a, a you know, a, a three-minute history of like what you guys started out to do, how that's changed, and where you sure. guys are right now. Yeah, I mean, so we, we started out back in 2006. Um, and it's kind of, it's, it's pretty well framed actually, but by what I was doing and what Alistair was doing. I, um, I worked for a consultancy. We put in document management software and business process software into insurance companies and finance companies. Very dull. Okay. Very, very That was dull. your job before? That was my job before. And okay. I, wore, I wore a suit every day. Um, clean shaven. Yeah, clean shaven. Oh, yeah. Like totally different from now. And um, Alistair worked for an agency where he'd been trying to implement SharePoint. He was one of the, on the kind of exact team there. And it had been a complete failure and a very, very expensive failure. And I'd been kind of having this idea about taking the best parts of these, this kind of big, boring, dirty document management system and delivering it as SaaS. You know, the, the cloud term hadn't really, really even been invented back then. But, you know, delivering it as SaaS, pricing it in a way which could go from a small, very small company to a very big business. So I was the kind of like the solution guy. Alistair was the problem guy in that he wanted something that he could have used in his company. We, uh, we went out for drinks one night. I was living in uh, Tooting at the time. He was in Wandsworth. We went out in Tooting Beck. We, as you do, went out for like five pints and a curry, put the world to rights, and that, that was the night the huddle was born. And I think we knew pretty early on that what we wanted it to do. We'd, we'd come across Basecamp, which was awesome, but pretty simplistic. We wanted to build on more kind of deep enterprise functionality, you know, auditing, version control, all the stuff that people don't get excited about, but they kind of have to have. But package it up in a way which seemed sexy and friendly and actually turn it into more of a startup thing rather than a a boring enterprise company. So we started selling to agencies and brands, and then we started doing a load of government work as well. And I think you know, what we found was that any company who cared about security, if they care about compliance, but if they're very collaborative, so they're working with their partners or with their customers, or in the case of government, working with other government agencies, Huddle's a, a really, really good fit for them. Was it difficult in the beginning with bandwidth issues and with storage issues? Because, you know, things were a lot more expensive to move around and store back yeah, in 2007. Yeah, well, right? this is it. I mean, I feel like such an old guy now. When I, talk to, when I talk to these startup guys, you know, we didn't have AWS and we didn't have Elasticsearch and we didn't have all what was Stripe and all the stuff that people take for granted now. It's like back in my day, we had to write everything ourselves. And they just look at me like, a, like, you know, like I'm in my mid-30s, which, which I am. Um, <laughs> And so, yeah, well, you know, we, we kind of had to, do, had to do everything from scratch. Um, and what it meant was, you know, the speed of development was much slower. You know, we didn't have the inbuilt elasticity, so we had to manage our own server farms. And it's, it's been kind of interesting, kind of as we've taken the architecture of Huddle and begun to move it onto these kind of more, you know, more modern, more elastic platforms where you get great economies of scale, where, you know, where you can flick on new servers at a switch rather than having to phone your hosting center and get them to plug in a new, a new Blade server for you. Was that a big cost center for you in the beginning, like you know, server farms? And- it's, it's never been too bad, actually. I mean, the, the business, um, it's probably more bandwidth intensive than kind of processing intensive. But, you know, for, for a company like Huddle, where you're hiring salespeople, you're hiring support people and marketing people, the people cost is, is, is the greatest for us. And the life cycle of trying to sell to a government or a financial institution, I mean, we've had everybody in here, whether it was, uh, you know, software development companies for risk management, you know, out in the city, or whether it's, um, you know, Digital Shadows, Alistair Patterson trying to sell, you know, software to the banks. I mean, it takes time. Is, is that, was that frustrating in the beginning for you guys? Well, you know, we, we didn't start selling to these guys straight away. And actually, even the, for our first government customers, they kind of bought us cheaply as a service on credit card and what we found was that you know the best fit we had was actually with the bigger guys who wanted to pay on 
upfront invoice. So, you know, the, I think the overall vision for what we've built hasn't really changed. It's just, you know, we've kind of got a bit more grown up about how we've been doing it and start, you know, and sold into, into bigger customers. And what's been nice as well is that with Huddle, you don't have to go and buy a, you know, 50,000 person deployment if you're a big company. You can start with 50 seats and then grow it as you, as you need it, which means we can get sales done quickly and then kind of aggressively grow them after that. And has competition sprung up like rapidly in the last few years when other people are able to scale really quickly when maybe five, ten years ago it would have been harder for them to catch up? I think that on the technology side, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, when you're talking to big companies, you know, they're buying more than just technology. They're buying, you know, your brand and your service and your reputation. They're, you know, they're buying the fact that you've got, you know, the great security in place. And a lot of this stuff is not just the tech, but it's also the procedures and policies and, you know, all the kind of boring stuff that most entrepreneurs don't want to do because they just want to put, they just want to build great products. Unfortunately, if you're building software for a business, great product isn't enough. You have to have all the other stuff. Yeah, for publicly traded companies and governments, it must, that, that must be almost more important than anything else. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, we, we pride ourselves on product, we pride ourselves on technology, but, you know, when you talk to government customers, often that's not the key buying decision for them. It's right. around reliability, it's around trust, it's around security and policies, and, you know, do other government departments use it? Can they talk to the CIO there? It's a, it's a whole different ballgame. When you see startups like the, the, the latest startup idea, whether it's here or in Silicon Valley, and sometimes, you know, guys are t- trending to the sexy topics. I mean, do you ever think, why isn't anybody doing, you know, waste management or, you know, something? Because, I mean, you kind of started off in that niche where you kind of did the unsexy part. I mean, are, are there other are industries that are being ignored because of that? You know, I think a lot of the industries, you know, which you probably think are being ignored are probably still very, very manual. Um, I think that more and more, you know, you see companies who are who are using technology to answer kind of difficult questions, you know, difficult questions who, which previously would have been ignored, like you know, startups for farming, for example, um, you know, huge industry. Which you know, how many startup guys have ever worked on a farm? So you know, so not many of them have that experience. But you know, there'll be this one guy whose whose parents probably own a farm. You know, he studied computer science, and bang, you know, there's your there's your farming technology entrepreneur right there. And I think you know, with technologies like um, like Rails, uh, which make it so easy to get up and running, you know, even guys who don't have a great deal of experience in terms of writing software can begin to build products really, really quickly. What about security? I mean, you know, with all the Snowden revelations in the last like nine months or a year, you know, it's, it's high alert for everybody. But I'm guessing you guys were thinking about security many, many years ago. And it, it, when, when all that stuff came out, were you like, yeah, we got that covered or do you have to kick things up? Well, you know, the, the, there's almost kind of two sides to security. You've got like the, the actual security, which keeps the hackers out. But I think the biggest question in most people's minds now are not the, not the kids in Russia trying to hack in, but the U.S. government who could you know, you incite prism and actually ask for data. Now we're lucky, you know, we, that's, we've never had that. You know, we, we offer data centers both in Europe as well as in the US for customers who are particularly worried about having data on US soil. Um, but, you know, but that kind of came about almost by accident, but by virtue of us starting here rather than a lot of our competitors whose primary data centers are, are in the US and so are, are much more vulnerable to having the US government come knocking on their door. So that's a selling point for you if absolutely. you can hold the data outside the US. Absolutely, absolutely. Are there any new industries that are springing out from the fact that, that, you know, that people might not want their data in the US or they might want their own data protected from the US government? Yeah, I mean, you know, we've seen a few things. I think um, you know, everyone loves Dropbox, right? But you know, Dropbox is still um, a US company hosted on US soil, hosted by Amazon. And we know that Amazon have, you know, they've given data to the U.S. government through Prism. So what we're seeing now is a lot of companies who are building, you know, allowing you to have your own private Dropbox 
um, on your desktop. So you're building basically your own mini cloud server with, with your stuff, but giving you the same kind of access and apps that Dropbox might. I think the second thing is we're seeing a lot of, um, a lot of work going into encryption. So you, know, you, might, you might store your, um, your, your files on Dropbox or Box or Huddle or whatever, but then you can add an extra layer of, of encryption on top of that where you hold the key, which means that you know, even if someone were to come to Box or Dropbox and say, hey, get, you know, we want the files for this person, whatever they gave them would just be a complete scramble. And for someone who doesn't know any better, what is it like the basic difference between, say, you and Dropbox? Because I think most people are familiar with Dropbox. They've seen it. They've used it. I think there's a couple of things. I mean, at its most basic level, you know, we don't work with, uh, we don't sell an individual product. We don't work with very small businesses. You know, we serve the mid-market and above. You know, and Dropbox is just files, sync and share, you know, whereas we provide a, a broader range of uh, collaboration tools around the content. And I think it was either you or Alistair that was saying the way you're staying ahead of the market is by simply providing a better product. I mean, are you always going back to your software and just trying to, to make the best product? Oh, there? absolutely. I mean, you know, we have a big team of, of guys here in London. And, you know, every two weeks they're shipping new product that goes out. You know, that means touching new endpoints. So, you know, that meant iOS, Android, you know, in the future it would mean Windows Mobile. It means, you know, thinking about how, you know, what are the kind of latest trends that people want to use in terms of how they're interacting with stuff. And often it means looking at how, you know, what's going on in the consumer social software world and kind of taking some cues from, from that. Because I think, you know, the people talked a lot about kind of enterprise social software two or three years ago. Um, I think what we're seeing now is that all enterprise software is becoming social. You know, everybody expects to see an activity stream. They expect it to be easy to use. They want to be able to kind of at reply people to bring them into the conversation. And, so, you know, and that's something we, you know, we've really embraced. And where, where do you see you guys you know, going in the next sort of three, four, five years as technology changes, Google Glass comes in, and you know, it, as the access to information, it all becomes cloud and totally, yeah, totally. becomes smaller? Yeah, I mean, I think that... Um, our job really is to make sure that the right content and information is getting to the right people at the right time. And what that means is, um, you know, if someone is using, you know, if Google Glass becomes, you know, a truly kind of respected enterprise piece of kit, then we'll start writing software for that. Um, if it means we've got to push software, push huddle data into SAP because that's what customers demand, we'll do that as well. I mean, what we try and do is be very kind of customer-led in terms of the development that we're doing. Is... Um IPOs, things that are in the future, I, I, you don't want to ask you, put you on the spot, but I know Box has talked about it. You know, they're in the similar industry as you. Is this something that you see as an, an inevitability or even a plus? Or do you see it as a minus when you see some of these companies that have gone that route? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think every entrepreneur has the big dream of taking their company public. Um, right, you know, not, not every company, you know, is IPO ready. Um, not every company is really IPO worthy. I think a lot of eyebrows are raised when Box's S1 was filed um, and came out a couple of weeks ago. You know, it's a terrific company, fantastic brand, good software, you know, but they, they burnt through $140 million last money. year. Yeah. You know, so they, I think you know, they, they were 240 down, 100 up. It's um, yeah, a ridiculously cash-intensive business. But you compare that to someone like Workday, you know, also enterprise software, you know, and they are far leaner. You know, their customer acquisition cost is lower. You know, these guys are you know, public now and trading at something like ridiculous, like 17x re- revenue. That's a good business. Wow. So uh, no, no media plans, IPO. Just take that cross that bridge when you come to it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, it, it's, on, it's on our roadmap. We'd love to get there. I mean, who knows? You know, we, might be, we might be so attractive to somebody that they, they can't keep their hands off us and we get snapped up along the way. But you know, our, our vision really is just to build a, a solid, scalable company, which, you know, which has all the, the hallmarks of an IPO business. 
it's funny, Colin and I were talking about it before you came over here, and it's a, it's a theme that comes up all the time on the show, is that a lot of people, when they start learning about this industry, it's like, oh, tech startups, have you heard about the company that flipped in two years right. and three years? And then we had Simon from DFJ in here saying, you know, you're talking seven to ten years with a company. You're seven and a half years in. Um, have you ever thought about doing something else? Do you, Is that something you tell tech startup people that, look, this is a really long haul? Yeah, and I, I think that's it. I think everyone you know, has this, this dream that they can flip their company two years two years in and you know, go and work for Facebook or Google. But you know, those are unicorns, right? Um, I think if you're going to do a startup, you have to do A, not because you're in it for the, the, the cash short term. Obviously, you know, you, everyone wants to be rich at some point, but you have to do it because you love what you're doing. You, know, you have to do it because you love building a company, building culture, building product, working with customers, and just doing something which you know, might one day change the world. And hey, if you, if you get rich off the back of it, then then all the better. I think, you know, we're, Alistair and I, and, you know, a bunch of other entrepreneurs who have, you know, been at this for a while and made a bit of money along the way. I think we satisfy our kind of urge to get involved with other companies by doing a bit of angel investing here and there, you know, getting invest, involved with young companies who, you know, A, they, they, you know, they need the money, but also the experience, the mentoring, you know, and just kind of having a chance to, to spend time with us is really cool. And, you know, frankly, the, and the guys that we work with, you know, I, Speaking for myself, I'm sure Ali would agree, though, you know, one of the reasons we do it is because the companies are generally, we, th- we see them as being far more intelligent than, than we are. Than you are now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah okay. How many companies uh, do you have investments in at the moment? Uh, I think I've invested in about 24. So quite a few. Quite a few, quite yeah. A few. And are they based majority in Europe or over in, or in the States? It's about half and half, I think. So, okay. I mean, generally, I, I love companies that are based in Europe who kind of have that big ambition that they want to, to expand to the U.S., yeah. Um, but there's a bunch of companies in the U.S. which are fa- founded by Brits as well, who kind of started out there too, um, and not just Brits, you know, other Europeans. Love, I love SaaS and cloud um, infrastructure as a service. You know, people talk about you know software eating the world, um, and the kind of the analogy that I draw right now is that the it feels like we're in a gold rush, um, and it's very similar to the gold rush in the 1800s. Now, you know, it wasn't the guys who were out mining gold that made the money, but it was the guys selling shovels. Yeah. You know, and if you, you know, if you work with infrastructure companies, you only have to look at people like Heroku, look at um, um, a company that I invested called Bugsnag, uh, New Relic, um, GitHub. You know, these are, these, these are the guys that are, kind of the, that are powering the new web. You know, and no matter that most of their customers won't ever become big, you know, these guys will make a lot of money on, them, on the way through. You know, we're always talking about this ecosystem in London and how it competes with the Silicon Alley and the Valley and what London has that's great about it and what it's still lagging. You know, and, and I was just curious from you. I mean, you spent four years now, you know, in, with the Yanks and you get to see their work ethic. You get to see their mentality, the way they pitch, all of that. And then you come back here. Obviously, you're in touch with startups here. What's the main glaring difference you've seen between the two? Because you have a unique perspective. So I think that the, the access to capital is probably still the biggest thing. Um, and I think access not just to capital, but also access to experience. You know, the, in the U.S., there's a, an incredible number of um, experienced product managers, product designers coming out of companies like Google and Facebook. Zynga, Yahoo, and we don't have that in the UK. I mean, you know, we're able to export people over, and you know, there, there is a small number of very good people here, but there's nothing like the the mass of talent. You know, the angel investor network there is huge. It's very easy for a company to raise two million dollars almost kind of overnight, whereas here it still feels like it's a, it can be a bit of a slog. Um, I think you know the, the work ethic isn't isn't something I really buy. I think that you know we work just as hard here as yeah? they do there. Okay. I think we take more holidays. Um, but, you know, the, the guys that I, that I know here are, you know, just as hardworking as the guys that I know in the U.S. Okay, I'm glad that's on the record. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. I, I think any, anyone that, that says otherwise is, well, either, you know, I wouldn't put them into that category or they're, they're blind. Okay. Um, 
I think, though, that um, the biggest thing, especially on the West Coast, is just the echo chamber. You know, when you're in London, the, the great thing about London is that there's so much other stuff going on. You know, you've got the arts, you have music and fashion, legal, finance. It's all here. Um, which means, though, that you know we're fighting for talents against all of those other industries. Whereas in the in the US and in San Francisco, you know, it's all about that. So you know, the best and brightest all go into startups. And what that means is that the the, the quality is generally higher. You know, there there are there are more companies, and therefore, and the average quality seems you know just just a bit better. And what it also means that the is that the awareness is better as well. You know, I always say the biggest difference between London and San Francisco is you know if you go and talk to somebody about what you're doing in London, you have to explain to them why it's a good idea. Whereas when you talk to them about what you about what you're doing in San Francisco, you have to explain to it why your company is better than the three others that are doing something similar. <laughs> what a great reference. Yeah. You know, when when you go and angel invest, and you know someone like Ivan Mazura, we've had on the show. I mean, do, do you bring? I, I'm guessing it's not just the money that you bring is it the, the experience that you've been through at huddle or is it your rolodex that you can just put people in touch with the people i think yeah i think it's both i think you know for ivan in particular it was the the experience of huddle of you know growing the team to you know into the hundreds um it was you know everything that we've gone around building out a sales force because you know really ali and i knew nothing about startups beforehand he, he will claim this is this is his third startup but you know the other two were you know that we'd never built out sales and teams and marketing teams in the same way as we have done here um, and, you know, we've kind of made, I'd say, probably almost every mistake in the book. I think we're just lucky that we've made a lot more good decisions than bad decisions along the way. But we've made an awful lot of very bad decisions, too. Um, and it's not just, you know, it's not, it wasn't stupidity. It was just lack of experience and, you know, and lack of um, the kind of feedback mechanism that works so well in the Valley through kind of very proactive mentoring. Um, for Ivan, you know, he wants to talk about pricing. He wants to talk about sales hiring. He wants to talk about... Um, scaling out a technology team, product management, um, looking after the roadmap, how do you deal with customer requests, all the stuff that you know, we've learned along the way and we have the scars to prove, I guess. What's the biggest sort of piece of advice you give to a guy like Ivan, for example? I think focus on product. You know, one of the things that we, we, we didn't do early enough was really build out the engineering team as big as it should have been, which meant that you know, we, we built out a good sales organization and a good success organization, but you know, they, we'd, you know, we'd sell the software, they'd go to customers, customers, of course, would have feedback and gripes and requests, and we just couldn't service them fast enough because we just didn't have the, the capacity to, to build enough right. stuff. And so with Ivan, you know, him specifically, is, you know, he's building out a really great team, but they needs to kind of pump in more more engineering resource. Yeah, it's kind of a fine line, right? You want to keep cash flow up and keep the sales team rolling, Correct. but but on the other hand, you have to keep creating a good product and yeah. Stuff. And I think one, you know one of the things that we learned is that you know hiring additional salespeople, especially when there's stuff that needs to be fixed, is it's kind of a short term sticking plaster right. rather than kind of fixing the long term underlying problem, which could be only something that an engineer can do. You know, you've, you've had so many roles at Huddle. You've been the CTO, you've been head of product, head of marketing, you're now the EVP of strategy. How do you... That, dis- that's a, it's an amazing made-up title. Yeah, well, is, is that the executive <laughs> vice president of strategy? It, it is. Oh, okay. All right. Um, I, 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 I don't know either. It sounds important, though. <laughs> it does. I once worked for a company, and I had the, the role chief business development officer. That was my role, CBDD. Yeah. CBDO. Yeah. Anyways. Um, so uh, <laughs> why, why the role change, and, uh, and how do what you do find What do you actually yourselves? do, maybe? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, a, that's a really good question. 
question. Well, uh, well so firstly, the, 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 I think the title that we chose was just because it's so vanilla and broad rush, it lets me get involved in absolutely any conversation, you know, not only with the guys internally, but I can go and talk to VCs, I can talk to our alliance partners, I can talk to companies that we might be, you know, looking to, um, to either acquire or, you know, looking to work with. We, um, you know, I can talk to, I can talk at events, I can, I can do anything. Um, you know, Ali and I have always, you know, we've always kind of divvied up the roles. He was CEO, but looked after the business and operations side. In the very beginning, I looked after the product and, te- and technology piece. And I think to answer your question, the, the reason for the change was just that, you know, I'm a pretty good all-rounder, um, definitely talk the talk. But, you know, as we've grown and, and as we've been able to hire better people, it makes sense for me to step back and bring in people who are, who are better than me. I think the worst thing that any entrepreneur can do is keep their arms around stuff because then the company will never grow. Do you see that all the time? I mean, you must walk in these circles of all these, like, very successful startups. Do you see it sometimes where you're like, you shouldn't be the CTO anymore, or you shouldn't be the CEO anymore. Yeah, you, you do. And I think that the very, in the very successful startups, they realize you know, when they should and when they shouldn't be. I mean, what's always nice is that when you, when you see a CEO who is, you know, who's been able to grow with the company, you know, they start off as just you know, your typical founder CEO, but they've got all the makings, you know, the composure and the smarts to go on and potentially be a public company CEO. Right, right. How do you acquire talent? Because as an entrepreneur, you know, at a, at a very early stage, it's, it's difficult. You may not all have the cash to give them. Um, you may not have the, you know, the billion-dollar sort of road for them to jump on board. But yeah. you know, how did you acquire and you talent? Grew, you grew fast. After you got your first $12 million, you, were just, you had to scale fast. We did, yeah. I mean, I, I think that when, when I look back, and again, this kind of comes back to my point about Ivan, one of the biggest issues that we had, first of all, was that we didn't have a a really, really strong technical founder. You know, I was the technical founder and I'm a pretty awful, awful coder. Um, I haven't written a line of code in about three years now. And even, even when I was kind of more actively involved, I was still kind of crap. Um, and what that meant was that I think the stronger the, the technical founder you have, the easier it is to draw in talent. So we had to really kind of just do it by hook or by crook. You know, we, um, we hustled, we um, probably told a few fibs here and there, you know, but we, we got people in. And our first, actually our first technical hire was a, a guy who I found on Monster.com, and he was based out in um, the Czech Republic. His name was Bohus. Um, and Bohus was interested in moving to England. Um, he was interested in working for a startup. He was a kind of traditional kind of software engineer, software developer, but he was cheap. Um, he wanted to come, so you know, we, we made him an offer. You know, he came over, his English was terrible. You know, he, he was a, an incredibly strange guy, very smart, really, really lovely, but kind of odd. And in the interview, uh, which we did over Skype, I asked him about his, his hobbies. And he said, well, you know, I, um, I like computer science. If I wasn't writing software for a living, I would do that in spare time. I like disco dance. I like weightlift. I like inline skate. I was like, that's a, that's a good set of <laughs> hobbies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Does he so do, do them all together? <laughs> <laughs> I actually never saw him in his inline skates. Okay. But, um, and, you know, he, he came to us. His English was pretty terrible. So we, um, you know, we, we, we put him through language school as well. He missed his mum. So his mum came out and lived with him in his one-bedroom flat. Um, we, we never asked any questions about that. Um, <laughs> And, you know, and, and, and it was great. And his, he had a very kind of weird, kind of very kind of Eastern European dress sense as well, wore some really terrible T-shirts. I think on the day that Eden Ventures came around before we'd raised our A round, because they wanted to meet some of the team, Boas was wearing a, um, a T-shirt that had a, a graphic of um, three sperm 
on it and one of them like had a thought bubble that said emergency we're in the ass <laughs> it's like okay you don't get to talk to the investors today because we don't have any spare t-shirts for you to wear exactly. <laughs> is he still with you he is not i'm afraid no so he um in the end his, got his, fa- his father got sick and he had to move back to the czech republic so right. he actually worked for us remotely for a while but you know we've always been big proponents of having the team together here in here in london um, and so yeah, it, didn't, it didn't work out. But we're still in touch. I spoke to him just, just a couple of months ago. And are there certain tests that people have to pass to get the hire from you? I mean, do they have to meet, you know, all the top people? Do they, I, mean, I know Ivan was very specific about when he hires. He's like, they have to meet everyone in the team. Yeah, you know? I mean, it, it's kind of harder now, obviously, that the team is larger. But the second hire that we made, and really this was who we built the technology team around, was a, a guy called Bob. Um, I think Bob, his Twitter handle was always and still is Bob from Huddle. And so, you know, Bob is kind of Huddle engineering embodied. He's incredibly smart. He's a little bit of an oddball, but just an awesome guy. And in the interview, um, in fact, I interviewed Bob remotely because I was at the lawyer's office signing our, our first term sheet and Bob was sitting at my desk. You know, we, we talked, I quizzed him on technology. We actually got, um, he did a technical test for us as well. And I said, you know, beyond, you know, writing code, what else are you going to do? And he, um, he, he thought, he paused, and he said, I'm going to build you a team of peers. And you know, God bless him, you know, six years on, seven years on, you know, Bob is still with us, and Bob built us an amazing team of peers. And because Bob's so technically strong and so well-respected, you know, we've been able to build the team around him. Gosh, that's really what you want to hear when you're hiring someone. I'll build you a team of peers. It's like, yeah. give me, just give me a hug. Yeah. Right? <laughs> if you can really trust that to someone. Right? Yeah, and, and so, you know, and, and Bob... Um, you know, and, and our first CTO, Jonathan, you know, they built the hiring process for the technology guys, which was they would they'd meet with Bob, they'd meet with Jonathan, they'd probably meet with another engineer and one of the QA guys. And um, they'd do a technical test and, you know, they'd, they'd really put them through the ringer um, after being um, initially screened as well. And then the four guys that were involved would, um, would stand around and say, definitely yes, probably yes. Probably no, definitely no. And unless they got four definitely yeses, they wouldn't hire them. Which meant actually we weren't able to hire probably as quickly as we should have done, but we were able to hire really great people. You know, because from, from my time, you know, managing the engineering team, the one thing I know is that there is nothing as kind of downheartening as as the engineers feeling like they're carrying somebody. So they had to they had to feel like every single person they were bringing on was even better than them. How, how hard is it to uh, find engineers at the moment in the valley? Is it as bad as uh, bad as we hear? Well, you know, here? we we don't hire out there. I mean, we have we're kind of weird in that our San Francisco office is purely commercial. Okay, um, sales, success, marketing, the founders, um, all of our engineering talent is here in in London. And I guess because you know London is still kind of a smaller ecosystem because we've got a pretty big presence. I think the, it's actually getting easier over to, over time for us to to hire. You know, retention is good as well. Um, I think you compare that to the Valley where it's just so damn expensive. You know, I think you might pay £100,000 or the equivalent of $100,000 for like a good engineer in London. You'd probably pay $180,000 for the same person Seriously? in San Francisco. Wow. And the fact is, you know, they're probably going to leave you within 18 months because they're going to be wooed by the next, the next big thing. Jesus, that's really competitive. And are you hiring now? I know you've got offices in D.C. and some other places. Yeah, so, so right now we, uh, we have London, which is the, you know, really the engine room of the business. Where are you um, guys now in London? We are down by Oldgate, kind of Spitalfields area. Okay. Unfortunately, we were looking for a, a floor plate, which is bigger than you can generally find in this area. Okay. Um, yeah, I think everyone was kind of sad to go because a lot of our guys lived really close to here. Um, kind of, that's why it made me a bit teary coming, coming back here today. <laughs> it's like coming home again. Um, so, yeah, uh, and then we have um, a team in D.C. who service our um, kind of U.S. federal customers, um, a team in New York kind of doing East Coast, and then the guys in San Francisco. 
I just want to know, how, how do you uh, invest in all these angel companies? I mean, you haven't had like that liquidity event, that, you know, PayPal event where you've sold out. Have you managed to just, you know, monetize some things over the years? Or Yeah, you know, I yeah, basically that. You know, we've been able to, um, you know, take make a bit of money. You know, I've had a bit of property that's done well. Um, you know, some of the startups themselves have, have been able, I've been able to take money out of those guys as well. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's 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 kind of like slow and steady, and you know these aren't huge checks that I'm, I'm writing. I'm not Peter Thiel who's going in and writing a five hundred thousand dollar check for a company that's fallen in love with. Okay, and what are some of your other angel investments that you're excited about? So I think kind of London specifically. Um, so I've recently invested in Drift Rock, which is um, a guy called Matt Wheeler, and he came out of Forward Labs. So actually, I think Matt was actually the first employee. Are they in the at station? Forward. Did they just move into Old Street Station? They they've been running an event down in Old Street Station. Okay, yeah. Okay. I walked um, by. I took a picture this morning. And I was like, who are okay. these guys? And Drift Rock is um, online marketing tools for small companies. Yeah. Really, really cool. I mean, and these guys have so much experience from their days at Forward when they were running marketing campaigns for companies you know that these tools are based on what they what they use there so if anybody can make this into a big business it'll be Matt there's a company called Cloud 66 which is a infrastructure as a service company um, they come out of Wira a bunch of kind of former banking engineers really really smart guys and you know I think that they will I'd, I'd imagine at some point they're going to move out to the US it feels like a kind of classic you know West Coast Valley Valley infrastructure play um, beyond that there's a company called Wizoku um, which is founded by, by a former Huddle guy that used to work for me, um, and they do kind of enterprise ideas managements. Um, there is uh, Togetherer, which was founded by a really good friend called uh, Socrates, and Sox was the, um, the, co- the founder and CEO of Trusted Places, which sold to, to Yale. And with Togetherer, it's answering a very basic problem, which is how can I kind of easily and privately share um, moments with my family? You know, my sister hates Facebook. She won't put pictures of the kids on Facebook, but she'll put them on together so that we can kind of privately see them and share them. I sense a theme with software companies. <laughs> yeah. uh, no hardware? No, oh, no, I have no idea how hardware works. Okay, Hard, so you, hardware scares me. Okay, so you keep it, keep it what you know. Basically. Yes, exactly. And okay. do you, are you looking for more investments? Do you actively seek them out? Or they no, I mean, I, I, I've been tapped out for about, about three or four months now, right. um, and I've kind of made a couple since then, but it's... Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm basically, I mean, although if something really, really good comes along, right. you know, which just looks so amazing and so compelling, I might be able to find a bit of money for it. <laughs> Is that mentally tapped out? Both, I think, I think mentally, time-wise, and, and cash. What percentage of your time do you spend on those companies, would you say? Not much. I mean, it, Huddle is still pretty much all-consuming. You know, you, with the, um, the crossover from the, the UK to the US, you know, we get, I can probably get two hours within with the guys, two or three hours, depending if, the, you know, if I start really early and they start late. You know, I'm not a morning person. You know, if I could stay in bed till 10 a.m. every day, I absolutely would do. But unfortunately, it means, you know, being kind of available from 7 a.m. onwards. Right. So from 7 till 10 or 11, that's kind of UK crossover time. Then, you know, maybe a, a couple more hours with the guys that are working really late here. And then afternoon is kind of huddle projects. And, you know, so I might work from 7 till, you know, till 6.30. And then I might spend like an hour with a, a startup or something after that. Okay. But, you know, a lot of these guys, you know, the reason that you invest is because they, you know, they will reach out when they need it. So I'm going to see Kieran O'Neill from Thread after this to catch up with him. Um, but, you know, they, they know what they're doing. You know, they, you know, they want some advice. They want to bounce an idea off you, but you're not having to run their business for, for them. Will you ever move back to London? Oh, that's a really good question. I, um, had you asked me this a year or so ago, I would have said absolutely not. But every time I've come back to London in the last kind of nine months, I've kind of realized how much I, I miss it. Um, but then I get back to San Francisco and it's sunny and I can go and sit on my deck and it's like, I really love it here. So I feel like I get the best of both worlds right now. I'm in London every kind of right now, every six or seven weeks. 
Um, so I get to kind of see my friends here, you know, do all the kind of cool stuff around here, you know, really kind of have that big city vibe and then get back to San Francisco where I feel like I lead a, a much kind of healthier, um, much kind of, um, much more kind of rigorous lifestyle in terms of, you know, healthy eating, working out, you know, not spent, not going out to like four or five o'clock in the morning at weekends. Because, you know, when I lived here, I was in my 20s, and, you know, London's such an amazing city with so much going on. There's always stuff, you know, always stuff going on at night. And what happened was, you know, you end up going out late, and you feel awful the next day, you don't do anything. Um, and my housemate at the time, Chris, he was, uh, he was a lawyer. You know, he was, you know, a bit more sensible than me. And him and his girlfriend would go and do really cool stuff. You know, they'd go to flower markets and antique markets. I was like, God damn it, I want to, I want to do that as well. So I treated San Francisco like, as a bit of a reboot of my life. You know, I would be healthier, I wouldn't party as much. And, you know, I'd be very kind of heads down at work and I would spend my weekends, you know, doing outdoorsy, interesting things like hiking and skiing and cycling. As opposed to being hungover. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's right. No, L- London has a crazy way that it, and it spirals, you know, it's like a negative feedback loop because you do that, you go out, you yeah. have the curry, you have the <clears> minds, <throat> you wake up the next day, it's raining anyways. Exactly. So you're like, I won't do that. And then I'll... It, it, yeah, that, that's it. And, and actually, I have to really force myself to stay in at weekends because it's it's sunny so much you know there's like 300 days of sunshine or something in san francisco even if it's not that warm it'll be blue skies and sunshine so you kind of want to get out and make the most of it so sometimes i have to force myself to like you know what today i'm just going to take a day off and just kind of stay at home and watch tv you know catch up on orange is the new black or game of thrones or something wow quite a change did you want to say something um i forget now you know <laughs> i'm gonna hit you with a, a question that we ask everyone on the show uh and uh, we ask everyone on london real as well and here it is um andy if you can make a phone call to the 20 year old andy mclaughlin and give that young man a bit of advice what would you tell him to do uh i would tell him to um i would tell him to to, to stop wearing the suit and to start that company that he's been thinking about <laughs> But you spent, what, six or seven years in the non-startup? Yeah, business? yeah. So, yeah, I was probably kind of working inside regular companies for five, five, six, seven years. Okay. And it was too long there, you think? You know, it, it does give you insight. And I think the, the, the challenge with going straight into startups, especially B2B startups, is that unless you've worked in a business, you have kind of no frame of reference for how business people buy and use stuff. You know, it's easy to, to think that everybody who works inside companies is like us. You know, and I have to constantly remind our team that, you know, they're not just catering to people like us, they're also catering to Betty and accounts who doesn't, you know, she doesn't use software, she doesn't have an iPhone, she just wants to get her, her job done. Right. Or, um, the, or the government, which is probably one layer removed right. from that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But uh, so I think kind of, you know, getting a bit of time inside a regular company is useful, but I think that the, the worst thing that, that, I, that could have happened to me or, you know, anyone else in our industry would be to, to, to never have had the kind of the cojones to, to kind of take that step and, and do what they wanted. Because, you know, the worst thing you could do is kind of turn around. You're, you're 50, you know, you've got an okay job and an okay life, but you never took that, that risk and, 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 and did what you want. On that same note, what's the best advice you've ever received? Um, the best advice I've ever received. My dad told me that you should never sell something for less than you bought it for. <laughs> pretty basic but it's amazing how many people don't remember yeah. that if buy low and sell high yeah if you're, um, a, if you're a trader in the city it's not always the best thing but yeah. so, so what did he mean by that and what have you taken from that i think you know he, he, he just he just always think about um you know what's your margin how are you going to make money on this and i think in startups it's easy to kid ourselves that you know we're growing really fast you're in a land grab for whatever reason and that unit economics don't matter. But of course they do, because if your unit economics are screwed to begin with, then as you scale, they're just going to get even worse. And to support a business like that, 
you know, talking about, about Box, for example, requires a huge amount of money and hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, for these guys, you know, it's such a, such a great product and they have such great leaders that it actually might well work out that, you know, the, the gamble and the money in will pay off in the long term. But, you know, that's one in a million. You know, they're a bit of a unicorn in that, in that regard. I think as well, um, some great advice I got from, um, from Ben White, one of the, capital, one of the, uh, the partners at Notion Capital, was that, and you know, we talked to them when we were doing our B round. In the end, we took the money from Matrix instead. But you know, those guys are fantastic UK investors, especially for for SaaS and cloud. And what Ben said was that you know, as you grow and as you kind of begin to hire more people, you know, you're going to hire guys that are more experienced than you. They have more grey hair than you. They have great resumes. You know, and th- these guys are here to enact what you want. And don't ever feel like just because they've got more experience, they understand your business better than you do because they don't. Good advice. Good advice. Last part of that question is to the 20 year old that's listening to us around the world, you know, China, South America, anywhere. What advice do you give to them if they want to get into, you know, technology? So what's what's great now right, is the barriers to entry, both in terms of building products and, um, and launching products and raising money are so much lower. You think now that a, you know, having access to Heroku and AWS means that shipping a product that can scale easily is really simple. It doesn't mean you have to spend hundreds of pounds a month on servers anymore. It means that with platforms like Twitter and Facebook, um, you know, you've got this kind of inbuilt marketing platform that you can use to kind of test ideas. There's um, Buffer, which is one of the investments. Joel, you know, he's like the ultimate lean startup guy. And he's blogged very actively about their journey, about, you know, from idea to paying customer within six months. And I think any, everybody should read that. You know, even, you know, even if you're, you know, you're thinking about doing it in a different way, it just goes to show that you don't need to overinvest in order to kind of get something up and running. And I think lastly, because of AngelList, you know, AngelList didn't exist two years ago or three years ago. And now it's so easy to connect with investors. And it, of course, it helps to be out in the Bay Area and it helps to have, you know, a big name lead. But, you know, if you have a great idea and you can convince somebody to kind of to start that, that snowball for you, it's actually pretty easy to, to get in front of investors who up until previously, it felt like it was a kind of closed old boys network that unless you had an in, you were never, never going to reach them. And does this also mean greater competition all of a sudden? I mean, does it mean that everyone has access to these things? Oh, of course it does. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I, th- I think in terms of money, it means that, you know, investors are being flooded. It means that every startup is competing with not just the guys within 10 square miles, but, you know, people from, from all over the world. But, you know, frankly, as technologists, only, it can only mean that we have to build better products. Right. The best idea rises to the top. Yeah, absolutely. And not just the best idea, the best execution as well. Right. Ideas are cheap. Yeah, we, we talked briefly a couple episodes ago about NDAs and, you know, not signing them. I think we talked to Ben Southworth yep. about it. Do people sign NDAs anymore? Yeah, people sign them, but I think everyone realizes it's pretty ac- academic. Okay. Because I mean, I'm, I'm sure if my, if my ops guy hears this, he'd probably shoot me for saying it, but it's, you know, it, they're not really worth the paper they're written on, but you kind of still have to do it. You do. Yeah. Okay. Out there. And it's tech in a bubble. Is tech in a bubble? Um, I think it's in a bubble which will which will shrink again at some point, and I don't think it's going to shrink in terms of the number of people working in it. I think the valuations are, are a bit high, less so in London and Europe, but certainly in the Bay Area, where you've got like you know two kids coming out of Stanford who are going to raise you know a, a, a ludicrous valuation for a company that's probably never going to make any money. That you know those businesses will in the future be worth less, but you know I think that as software permeates every aspect of our lives. You know, like IoT is such a big, a big thing. You know, the Internet of Things is a big thing. That um, you know, there is an ever-growing market for for, for software companies. Um, I just think that the the crazy valuations will have to stop at some point. 
But like Amazon this morning came out, with, yesterday or today came out with their earnings. Twenty billion they made, but they spent like nineteen. But that's Amazon always does that, right? Isn't but the, the but they're trading at what five hundred and forty-five times earnings or something like that. It's, wow. it's ridiculous. That's like the Bezos mantra: just to throw all the money right back in the company. Yeah, I mean, right? they didn't make a profit for yeah. an incredibly long time. Yeah. And it's funny, actually, even now, you know, even on the West Coast, there is still um, a huge market for people that aren't you know, fully invested in technology or even really understand it. Um, we were talking to my girlfriend's father a little while ago about what he might want for his birthday, and he didn't know. And so Christina said to him, well, maybe we could buy you Amazon vouchers. He's like, you know that I don't read books. <laughs> yeah. So there's still a little bit of a disconnect. Still, yeah. still a little yeah. bit of a gap. Eh? Yeah. You can buy... Anything. Anything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've had all sorts of crap delivered. I've had yeah. shoelaces and deodorants. Um, well, would they say now they're, uh, they're testing out uh, actually sending you stuff before you buy it? Well, so, I, it's, really? I, I mean, there's a bit of a misnomer there. Cause right. As I understand it, what they right. do is they begin to ship stuff to local distribution centers around you, okay. around you so that, you know, based on buying patterns of other people, they can get stuff to you even, quick, even more quickly. By drone. <laughs> By drone, yeah, that, and, that would be really yeah. cool. And same day delivery is is, is getting yeah, big yeah, yeah. In, in a lot of cities. Yeah, and you know, then that you know, the whole kind of marketplace and delivery thing, especially in in San Francisco, is huge. You know, you've got. So I, I was lucky enough to invest in Postmates. Um, I knew Bastian uh, Lehman, the CEO, is a German guy back here in London before we and we both moved out to SF around the same time. You know, and he didn't really know what he was going to do, but you know, he said he wanted to start a company, and he's just such a, a go getter that you couldn't help but kind of invest in, in him. You know, and these guys have just grown like a weed. I mean, they, they, they raised 17 or $18 million recently on like a great valuation. You know, and that business is launching in, launching in D.C., in Brooklyn, in New York. Um, you know, to, and it, you know, it has the potential to be the next Uber. In fact, I think in, in the U.S. now, they are third behind Uber and Lyft in terms of number of drivers on the road. It's just that they're shipping packages and food rather than, than people. Wow. Fascinating. Yeah, I think we're going to see the NASDAQ kind of correct a bit, maybe 20, 25%. But anyways, we'll see what happens. Um, Andy, uh, our time's up. Thanks so much for being here. Thank uh, you. It, it flew by as usual. Um, <laughs> how do people get a hold of you? Uh, are you a Twitter guy? You are a Twitter oh, guy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They can tweet me um, at Bandrew. Okay. And what about getting jobs at Huddle? Uh, should they? Uh, yeah, they go, go, to, go to our website. You know, I think we're probably, we've probably got 10 or 15 open positions right now, especially um, uh, QA people. We are desperate to find software software testing engineers okay, or like quality assurance just testing testing uh i mean these are kind of more um kind of engineers writing code around the testing rather than kind of dumb button clickers excellent excellent all right okay. if you're if you're uh listening to us on itunes you can uh, come watch us on uh, channel youtube uh we're on twitter at silicon real um i would like to get drift rock in here at some point um because it's i would i'm gonna see him later tonight and i will ask him in person awesome fantastic and if you guys have any other ideas uh for startups or anybody you want to see on the show uh send us a tweet out at silicon real or hello at silicon yeah. uh this is episode 43 43 we've had a few people reach out uh wanting to help out over the summer yeah keep them coming uh we need more help and uh yeah send us a drop us a note yeah fantastic we've been uh, working on getting huddle in the studio now for like 18 months so <laughs> <laughs> thanks so much for being here well th- yeah, thanks for great. thanks for bearing with me no it's a fantastic story and your whole bi-coastal really puts everything in perspective and so it's you now really good to have you here um as we say on silicon reel it's about the people andy thanks so much thank you guys thanks all right take care For us, the decision to do a Kickstarter was about mainly about to show that people care about what we want to create, essentially building our first tribe. 
We are uh, the, the highest, uh, the biggest crowdfunded project that came from the UK, even though we did a US Kickstarter, but we are a UK company. Yeah. Um, we are today, I think, number five in product design all time. Number 31, I think, all time in Kickstarter out of half a million. <clears throat> and number one um, in, uh, in, the, in category that is related to learning.